Well, good morning. Uh, it is <clears throat> good to see everybody here this morning. It's always fun to, man, it's really fun to look around and watch uh, you guys worship. I love it. Uh, that's what we're here to do, right? We're here because, like Daniel and Jesse have both said, he is, he is worth it. And so today, um, I'm not going to apologize for the very task which I have to do, which is point us to Christ. Okay, we're going to get a picture of him this morning that I hope, man, I hope it blesses you the way the word has blessed me uh, this week as I have studied. If I haven't had, if I haven't had a chance to uh, meet you yet, my name's Ed. I think that should say that on the screen. And um, if, if you've known me very long, you know I like uh, books. And so I have way too many books every time we move. Way too many boxes, way too heavy, uh, but books are amazing. Uh, best book I've read this year, uh, without a doubt, was written by a six-year-old girl. It happens to be my daughter. So she's into writing books now, which is like, oh my gosh. I mean, it just, and her books are so good. Uh, she's still trying to figure it out. She starts at the last page and writes it to the left, uh, which we got to figure out. It's like it's Hebrew or something. Um, but uh, when a six-year-old girl writes a book, you kind of know what you're going to get. Uh, it is definitely about unicorns, okay? It is about um, princesses. It involves her, uh, her sister Haley at some point. Haley is like a hero. Uh, it is bright. It is happy. And the color is a lot of pink, okay? That's what you're going to get. And you kind of know that when a seven-year-old girl is writing a book. Uh, and then there's, there's people where sometimes with people, you, you know what you're going to get, right? Maybe there's times where you call somebody or you meet with somebody and you're kind of like, I think I, I think I know what's coming. I think I know what I'm going to get when I meet with this person or I call this person. I have particular uh, strange friends in my life who, uh, when I call them, they answer the phone in a particular way every single time. Uh, one of my friends, as soon as I call him, he'll always answer the phone and go, ayo. Like, that's just how he answers the phone. I'm like, okay, he's excited to hear my voice. Most of you should do, do that when I call you. Um, another friend I have, uh, he calls me by a different name every time he answers the phone. He's like, what's up, Chuck? Or uh, what's up, Ricky? Or what's up, Diesel? He has different names for me. Never, ever is it Ed. Uh, I've got one friend who likes to talk to me in baseball chatter when I call. He's like, uh, what do you what do you say now? What do you say now, Ed? You know, I'm like, okay, different, different friends. I have one person in my life who happens to be the person I call the most, and every time I call her, it is like, oh, every single time I've been waiting all day for you to call. You're my hero. She says this every time. You're my knight in shining armor. I have done nothing all day. I've just waited by this phone, <laughs> just waiting for you to call. She's obsessed. I don't, it's so crazy. But there are certain people uh, that you meet with them and you know, man, when I meet with this person, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of laughing, right? There's going to be, um, or maybe it's like, we're just going to do a lot of small talk. We're really not that close. Or uh, unfortunately, it's going to be a lot of drama, you know, I don't really want that, but it's going to be a lot of drama when I connect with this person. It's going to be a lot of encouragement. When I connect with this person, man, it's going to be life-giving, and I cannot wait to connect with this person. They leave me feeling strong when I walk away from that time with them. Here's the question this morning. What do you get when you meet with Jesus? What do you expect when you meet with Jesus? What do you get when you meet with him and he meets with you. 
He's going to leave you feeling a certain way and believing certain things. He's going to greet you in a certain way. So today, as, as Brian said, we're in John chapter 21, probably one of my favorite texts of all time. Uh, it includes almost all of my favorite things. We've got breakfast in here. We've got the morning. I love the morning. We've got even talks about sheep. I love sheep. Uh, and the beach, the beach. Brian's not a big fan of the beach. It's something about sand in places he doesn't want it. But I'm like, bring on the sand. I love the beach. So he just couldn't even muster the thought of preaching this sermon. So he gave it uh, to me. You got breakfast, you got the morning, you got sheep, you got the beach. And then most of all, man, you've got Jesus. I got Jesus on the beach having this encounter with uh, Peter. And it is, it is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant the way John ends this gospel. Um, Jesus like Brian said, we're doing a series on uh, the risen Christ. So these are appearances of Christ after he has risen from the dead. And um, he is really intentional, right? He's the most intentional person there ever was. And so why is it that Christ would meet them in this moment, in this place? He's got really particular intentions for why he does this. He sets up the scene brilliantly. Okay, and so this presentation of himself is really important. And I feel like there's so much in scripture where it's like you just keep reading it. And you're like, oh, I never got that. I've read this passage, this story so many times. But it's just like, I feel like you got scuba gear on and you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ and to worship our God is that a God who can be understood fully doesn't deserve to be worshiped, right? And so we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper as you get older and older and as you grow in him. And so, man, just looking at Jesus in this text, he gives us a picture of who he is and he shows us, this is what you get when you meet with me. Okay, so today I wanna challenge us a little bit. And I guess the first question is, do you, do you meet with him? Like you all have your own stories, you all have your own rhythms, you have your own daily life. Do you meet with Christ? <laughs> Here's the deal. He wants to meet with you. Like Brian said a couple of weeks ago, like he doesn't kick the door down. He's a, he's a gentleman. Right? He doesn't kick the door down. He waits. And he says, Are, do you make space? Do you make space for me? Man, one of the most just important things is just making space for him. He is a God who loves to communicate. He loves to be heard from. Do any of y'all feel like you live just like in the shallows up here where it's just like distraction, 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 distraction. But then like when you put the phone away and you put everything away, you turn all the, all the stuff off and you get past the daily concerns and all that, which I would call like the midlands, and then you get down to the depths. And the depths are that place where you're quiet enough to hear from the Lord. And so uh, it's an incredible opportunity that God and Christ um, offer to us on the daily, all throughout the day. So that's kind of first question is, man, do you meet with him and I want to give you a picture of what it looks like and what you get when you meet with him. 
Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline from the beginning, okay? It's five words. They all start with F. When you meet with Jesus, you get fed. When you meet with Jesus, you get forgiven. When you meet with Jesus, you get formed. When you meet with Jesus, you get fueled. When you meet with Jesus, you get focused. He focuses you. So I want to show you a picture. Uh, this scene takes place on the Sea of Galilee, uh, which this picture was taken uh, by Jenny or Drew Anderson. I can't remember which one who took it. They were on, on a tour uh, recently, and, or a couple of years ago, right, back in 2018-ish. And uh, at uh, the Sea of Galilee, and their tour guide uh, took them to this spot uh, where maybe this had happened with Jesus, and the tour guide, being awesome, uh, put a little fire there for, for, for them, which we're going to see happens in this story. So that's the, just to give you a, a visual, we're going to put up there the whole, the whole service. You can kind of feel the fire and smell the, the sea and um, kind of have the beach feel this morning. Um, so let's do this. Let's look at John 21. We're going to do 1 through four, 14 to start off. And uh, we'll first look at, man, you get, you get fed. When you meet with Jesus, you get fed. Verse 1, chapter 21 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter. Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I don't know how he said this, but he said, I'm going fishing. Or was it tired of waiting around? I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I used to do. Enough of this. Not exactly sure how he said it, but he said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught what? Not a thing. Okay, so maybe he's not as awesome at fishing as he thought he was. Just as the day was breaking, there he is. Man, do y'all, y'all feel that moment right there? There's no fish. And there he is. You just feel this like, what a storyteller. I love it. Just as day was breaking, meaning the morning, the sun is rising, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He's about 100 yards off. I don't know if they just couldn't tell or what. Jesus said to them, children, (laughs) not professional fishermen, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, big ones, caught a ton of them. They just give a one word answer. Nope. We got nothing. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Does this sound familiar? Luke 5. We've seen this before. The disciples have seen this before. Peter's seen this before. He's heard this before. He said, cast it down the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Other way he said some. So they cast it, and now they were not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, classic John, uh, therefore said to Peter, he said, I told Peter, hey, it is the Lord. Because of this great catch, he recognizes something. He says, it's, that's, that's the Lord, which sounds kind of familiar. 
um, to or similar to when Peter said, you are the Christ. So you got a lot of, a lot of things happening here. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Okay, so he's about to go for a swim, but he puts on his clothes. It's kind of interesting. For he was stripped for work. And he threw himself, is that just like, like throws himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Isn't that great? When somebody's passion leaves you to do the dishes. The other disciples came in the boat, uh, dragging the net full of fish. Thanks for your help, Peter. Uh, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. So he, he grabs himself. Somehow he throws himself like can, cannonball Peter style into the sea. And I picture him like 100 yards, like swimming. And then he gets to the shore kind of, and he's like running, picking up his clothes and just running, sprinting with just water flying all over the place toward Jesus. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and Jesus laid, and sorry, and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went back on board and hauled the net ashore. So the disciples didn't bring it all the way; they left Peter with a little bit of work to do. So Peter goes back and he hauls uh, the net ashore, full of large fish. Jesus doesn't catch small fish. Okay. Um, So full of large fish, 153 of them. Gosh, Caleb, imagine that. Okay, our fishers in the room, Ethan, man, imagine 153 just hauling that bad boy in. And although there were many, the net was not torn. There's a lot there. Uh, Jesus said to them, come, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, which sounded similar to what he's done before. And so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus was re- revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when you meet with Jesus, you get fed. That sounds simple, but it's like when you go to certain people's homes. Have y'all been to people's homes in, in this room where you walk in, you're like, I know I'm, I'm about to get food. I'm about to get fed in this place, okay? Um, I love you for doing that. But getting fed is interesting because it's always outside of yourself. Like getting fed, you go into somebody else's, somebody else's his house, they're, they're, they're hospitable, they give you food. It's like by nature, it's, it's passive. It's dependent on somebody else. Even farming, fishing is dependent on uh, a lot of different conditions, all right? So a fisherman needs all the right con- conditions. So it's humbling. Being fed is actually humbling because you're not really doing it yourself. It is happening to you. Right. And so the point of this, this point, you get fed, is that you get welcomed in with hospitality and generous blessing with Jesus. Just think about that. How do people receive you in your world? Jesus is going to receive you. He's going to welcome you and say, come, eat, have that which you don't currently have. That's what you get when you meet with him. And man, does he know how to set a scene. Jesus is perfect at setting the scene. If you've ever like tried to date somebody and you just want the scene to be perfect, you want the setting to be just right, you get the right food, you get the right uh, plates and all that stuff, a blanket, a picnic, whatever. Uh, But you want it to be perfect. Jesus is like recreating this scene here for maximum teaching emphasis. So you got this scene, they're on the Sea of Galilee 
And you think about all the experiences that they have had in this place. Just kind of if, if you grew up in church and you know the Bible and you know like all the different stories of what has happened at this place, you've got, especially for Peter, it's where he called Peter in the first place. He called him, right? And he's like, come follow me. And Peter's like, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. And he's like, Peter, you follow me. There's a scene in scripture where Jesus comes out to them on this particular sea. He's walking on the water. And Peter even walked on the water for a little bit. All right, which is funny. He didn't walk on the water when he jumped out of the boat. But, and then Peter eventually like drowns and then he gets Jesus or starts to drown and Jesus re- reaches down and he saves him. There's a scene in scripture, one of my favorite scenes as well, where Jesus is sleeping in the boat. There's this massive squall, this storm, and Jesus is sleeping. And he gets up and he says one word. He says, hush, I own you. I created you, storm. You bow down to me, and it it does that. And so all this is happening in this scene that Jesus is uh, creating here. He's calming the storm. And and then even looking back at Luke 5, uh, remember, we, we just mentioned that, that he's, uh, he's calling Peter to this different type of fishing. Okay? And then he starts to follow Jesus, and he starts to teach him what it looks like to follow in such a way where uh, he's fishing men. So John 21, we get to this place where all of that, they had to be feeling that. right? Peter had to be feeling like all of that scene set up here, because Jesus is like, I'm about to make a point. And I don't want you to miss a moment. He's the most intentional person that ever lived. He knows exactly what he's doing. He didn't just happen to show up. It's not just happenstance that he's at this particular place at this particular time with these particular people. And so in a sense, he's asking Peter, inviting them to breakfast. And he's like, hey, remember, we're not doing this anymore. The thing you were just trying to do all night where you went fishing, we're not doing that anymore. I can provide, and I'm going to provide everything that you need, plus some, 153. You can never catch that many fish. I'm going to provide that plus some. I'm going to teach you what it means to be dependent. I'm going to teach you what it means to be patient. So for now, just come have this killer breakfast. The thing about Jesus, when you meet with him, is he was expecting you. He's expecting you. It says in verse eight that they saw a charcoal fire in place. It had been placed there by one who was previous to you. God is always previous. He's always before you setting up the moment, setting up the scene and says, I'm inviting you into this. God doesn't show up when you show up. He invites us to the place which he has already shown up. So he lays out this charcoal fire in this place, and then he's got these fish laid out on it and bread. Love this part because he doesn't use the 153 fish as if they thought they had anything to offer to this breakfast. It's not to bring your own breakfast. He says, I've already got it. It doesn't say where he caught it. I don't know if he just kind of had a little pole or he just said, fish, come here but he's already prepared that which they need when they get there. He can set the scene and he welcomes them in hospitality. Man, do you think about God? Do you think about Christ as hospitable to you? Or do you feel a little bit of this? 
you feel a little bit of this when you think about meeting with him as opposed to, come on, come on, come have breakfast. He makes the place and he sets the table uh, at breakfast. Man, breakfast is so good, right? Uh, I would have preferred bacon over fish, but um, that's what Jesus decided to do. Psalm 90, 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That's a great prayer to pray in the morning. Kind of, kind of, kind of like bless, bless you, God. This is like saying satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Let's start our day with that rhythm. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's satisfying them in the morning, not just with fish, but with his unfailing love. And so why does he do 153? And you could do all this. Don't, don't give me some weird theory about like 153 divided by three equals whatever. You multiply by three, it's the Trinity. And then you subtract by the number of disciples and you end up with seven, the number of completeness. No, that's not the point. Okay, the point is 153 is just saying, it's a, you know what, of a lot of fish. It's a lot of big fish. And Jesus will go above and beyond He's extravagant in his blessing. He's extravagant in his blessing. So he loves to be met with. He loves to give so much. And he has so much to say. When you meet with him, you get fed. You get fed. So he feeds us. This is classic Jesus, classic the way God likes to deal with us. First, he blesses us. He feeds us. He gives us what we need. And then... He deals with us. He says, come in, have breakfast. What he doesn't say is, because I've got work to do. Because I know what you're bringing to this breakfast table. But first, eat, experience my extravagant grace, but I've got some work to do on you and in you. Psalm 116, 7, one of my favorite scriptures of all time, says, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He deals with us. Have you ever dealt with somebody? Maybe you live with somebody now you feel like you have to deal with. Maybe you have to deal with yourself. God deals with us. He's got work to do in us. And so he feeds us first and then he deals with us. So number one, you get fed. Number two, this is, this is the beautiful part of the gospel. You get forgiven. You get forgiven. Christ welcomes you as you are, as you come, with all of your story, with all of your past. Have you ever had experiences in your, in your, your life where all of us have a story in this room? Exchanging Stories is a podcast that we've put out, and you've heard a lot of the stories in this room. One of the worst things we can do is never go back. Just try and put that in a closet, lock the door, and forget about it. But see, Jesus knows our story. He knows every bit of our story. A lot of us think like, man, I just can't wait till I get out of high school because I could just leave all that junk behind and I can go to college and I can start a new life. I could just start a new story. Or I want to move out of this town so I can just start over. That's not what God allows us to do. God says, you bring all of that to breakfast when you come to me. So in the morning when you meet with him, he says, bring it all. Bring it all. I can handle it all. The thing about God is he knows what we are coming out of. He knows what we're coming out of. He knows what we're currently walking through. And he also knows what we're about to walk into. You don't know that. 
I don't know what tomorrow holds, but he does. And because he can already see that, then he says, I need your attention today because I know how that has formed you. And I know that what you're walking through, I know how that is continuing to shape you. And I know what you're about to walk into so you don't realize how bad you need this breakfast. So here's what Peter comes with. This is what he comes to breakfast with. Luke 22. Back when Jesus was uh, pre-crucifixion. Right, Luke 20, 22, 54. Then they seized him, Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. He's distanced. He used to be close to him. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, huh, sounds similar to the scene we're looking at right here, Jesus, the master storyteller. Uh, Peter sat down among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, John's a lot about light, about this light, he's got this exposed moment, and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him, but he denied it. Peter denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And about an hour later, uh, someone else insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him. And Peter said, man, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, this next sentence is probably one of the most, like, gripping scenes in, I think, all of Scripture. Because Jesus had said, when the rooster crows, you, you will have denied me three times when the rooster crows. Verse 61, and the Lord his friend, his king, the one he said he had allegiance to, turned and looked at Peter. Do you guys have an imagination like mine? Can you, I don't know what you see in that moment, but you see like his close friend has denied him three times and you just see this like they're taking Jesus away and he intentionally just looks how do you see that look from Jesus? And Peter then remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to them, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter, he went out and did what? Wept bitterly because of that look. And he knew, he knew that at one point he had said, Christ, I would die for you. I'll give my life for you. And now to a servant girl and these nameless people. He says, I don't know him. And Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. I love how Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary. He says, if it was one of the most painful scenes in history, oh, the agony of the moment when with the echoes of the rooster still ringing, Jesus' un, Jesus's unblinking, guiltless, omniscient eyes looked into the heart of Peter. It's like he looked at his eyes, he's looking into his heart. Peter went out and wept bitterly, but his tears could not wash the image from his mind. He would never forget the awful thing he had done. Could he ever be what he had been again? All of this was firmly lodged in Peter's psyche. Sure, he had seen the risen Christ and had heard the comforting benediction, peace be with you, but Peter could not forget his lapse of love. Had he disqualified himself from fruitful service? Would his heart ever indeed know peace again? 
Then he says, and now a dripping wet Peter stood before the Lord on the beach after his fully clothed plunge into plunge and a frantic swim to the master, an impulsive demonstration of the apostles love. But Peter was not all better. He wondered if he could ever be used again. He needed a touch as we all do sometimes. Are there moments in your story where you're like, yeah, I'm with Peter here. Are there moments in your story when you reflect on your past and you say, yeah, I wish that never happened. Man, if I could go back and erase one moment or one season of how I behaved, how, what my action was like, my disobedience, man, I, I would erase that in a second. You have those moments where you can still hear the echo of the rooster. And I think the enemy wants you to believe that that is the most important part of your story. And so he wants you to believe that you are, um, you're worthless. Because of that, it's rendered you ineffective toward what God wants you to do. Has that made you aware or made you think that you're useless to, to Jesus? You think about Peter that night in the boat, think about how he just feels about himself. He's like, like I can't follow Christ. Now I'm going back to fishing and I can't even do that well anymore. Been fishing all night. I stink at everything. You ever been there? I can't do anything right. Everything I put my hand to is just awful. The enemy loves to meet us in the morning as well. Right? He wants to creep up on you, crawl in your bed, and say, just, just stay here. You don't need to be satisfied in the morning with his unfailing love. Just stay right here. Meet with Jesus. What kind of hokey, corny stuff is that? Listen, you're, you're beyond repair. There's no hope for you. Look at you. You know you. I know you. Let's just agree to know you. You're a joke. The enemy comes and shows us the past um, that we made and tries to destroy us. He says, this is still who you are. And he says, even in this moment where Peter's standing, sitting at this charcoal pit, the last time he's in a charcoal pit, he's denying the Lord. So even at this moment with the Lord, with the charcoal, the enemy wants to say, I know he's right here. I know Jesus is right here. He'll fight you to the very end. He says, you're still, remember the last time you were here? Deny him right now. You still don't believe him. You can deny him again right now. Peter can still hear the rooster crowing in his head. It's like the soundtrack of his story. And then Jesus asks him if he loves him. And again, even with every time he asks him that he loves him, Peter can hear the rooster crowing. And yet Jesus is there on the beach waiting, saying, I will meet you with mercy. I will meet you with mercy. I read an article this week by a guy named David Benner uh, in his book called Surrender to, to Love. He talks about what, he talks about shame. He talks about how shame internalizes a critical gaze. So shame is this belief about your identity 
where you put this critical gaze on yourself. And he asks a question at the beginning of this article. He says, take a moment and try a simple exercise. Um, ask yourself this, this question. What do you assume God thinks about you when you come to his mind? What do you assume God thinks about you when you come to his mind? So just let's, let's do that. Take a second and just think about that. What do you assume God thinks about you when you come to his mind? So Benner says this. He says, when I ask people to do this, a surprising number of people say that the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. So you might not be alone. Others assume that God feels anger. In both cases, these people are convinced that it is their sin that first catches God's attention. He says, in all my years of working with men in, in, uh, per, in particular, I have found this to be particularly true. Men think that by default, God is disappointed with them. They aren't praying enough, giving enough, serving enough, or doing enough. In short, they are not enough. It's amazing how hard it is to purge the gospel of works from our hearts. So we hesitate, so then, this makes sense, so then we hesitate to spend time with God or draw close to him. And that makes sense. Who loves being around someone who constantly judges them for their failures and reminds them of their shame? But this is not what Jesus shows us about God in the Gospels. Jesus is moved with compassion for the lost. Jesus welcomes the outcast. He befriends the sinner and finds his friends in their failure. Jesus is not disappointed in us as much as Jesus is determined to restore us. Another author said it this way. He said, the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and that suffering, not retreat from it. Do you really believe that, he continues, that Jesus' deepest impulse and most natural instinct is to move towards you in love when you binge that thing again after promising not to, when you see him moving towards you, do you see him moving towards you in love? When you yell at your kids in anger, do you see him moving towards you in love? When you are bored and cynical in church, do you see him moving towards you in love? I hope so because he is. He's always moving toward when you meet with Jesus, you get met with mercy. And that's the Jesus that sits on the beach every single morning. So you get forgiven, you get met with mercy. And so my recommendation, my challenge to you this morning is throw yourself, your busted up, pathetic failure self, grab yourself by the shirt, Throw yourself in the sea. Throw yourself in the sea and run to him. For he waits for you. He sets up shop on the beach. He waits to meet you with extravagant grace. His look is always a look of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Lamentations 3.22. His mercies never come to an end. They are brand spanking new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So my soul then says, the Lord is my portion. 
Nothing else can satisfy like he can. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so Jesus meets Peter with unbelievable mercy. (laughs) Unbelievable mercy. And he says, man, this is why I came, Peter. Don't bring your scorecard to me, Peter. I don't need your scorecard. I don't need all the good things that you've done, Peter. I don't need you showing this dramatic expression of throwing yourself in the water and trying to prove how much you love me. Peter, I just want you as a person. I don't want your scorecard. I'm the one who's given the scorecard. Jesus says, this is why I came. This is the gospel. Your scorecard is not let me correct it and make it better. The scorecard is rip it in half and give you mine. For my scorecard's the only one that's enough. Peter, you can't even save yourself. You can't even catch fish, bro. Have you figured out how dependent you are and how needy you are? All you need is sitting right here on this beach. Let me meet you with mercy. So we continue on, John 21. Look at what Jesus does next. When they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a lot of difference of opinion on what that these is here. You could spend the week reading about that word these. Uh, some people think that these means, do you love it more than these fish? Some think do you, it means, do you love me more than these do, more than these other disciples do? That's the most common, popular one. Let's just go with that one. Uh, he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said in the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, probably because it was the third time, you've got this, this denial three times. And now he's like covering each of those. Let me cancel that one out, cancel that one out. Now a third time he says, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so in this loving moment of forgiveness, of forgiveness here, Jesus turns to him and says, hey, remember those, those, those three, those three moments? I don't even have to mention them by name. I'm just gonna do it a roundabout way by giving you three alternative opportunities Okay, so there's like three denials and then there's three confessions. We'll talk about three commissions here here in a little bit. And so this is Jesus' math, right? Jesus doesn't keep record of wrongs. Instead, he matches your offenses with grace. Remember the enemy wanted to come in and just make you feel, just cover you in shame, expose you in shame. That's what he wants to do. Jesus doesn't bring shame. Brings conviction, doesn't bring shame. Jesus exposes our sin to cover us in grace and give us a better path. So those three are canceled out by this three. I love Jesus' math. I love the way he does accounting. And so he continues to say, come, come to the beach and be met by mercy. You ever ever wondered like, what does it look like to be upheld by upheld by mercy. Our family was in the mountains a few weeks back and we went to this place up at uh, Montreat College, if you've ever been up there near Black Mountain. And uh, we went in this little chapel called the Chapel of the Prodigal. 
It is, it is beautiful. But you go in there and there's this fresco painting of uh, the prodigal son's story. And so you walk in the chapel, I'll show you a little picture. Yeah, so uh, it's this fresco painting of a presentation of the prodigal son's story. You can zoom in on that uh, on the next picture. And this is what it looks like to be upheld by mercy. What you're looking at right here, if you're a believer, is your self-portrait. This is you. And I love this picture so much because look how helpless the son is. He's gone off and he's lived his life in a different land, the far country. And now he's come back and it's like the father's just holding him up in mercy. And he's given God glory. In the back, you can't really see it, but in the back, they got this feast hanging. And there's a lady partying that might be his mom, I'm not really sure. Uh, what you don't see in this picture is the elder brother who's not happy. But this is the picture of us upheld by mercy. And he says, I'm, it's here, forgiveness is here for you. And so maybe that's you this morning where you just need forgiveness. You've walked in this place and you just need forgiveness. You need to be met by Jesus to hear him say, come I will even run to you as you run to me and I will uphold you in mercy. Now, the tricky thing here is, the thing I've always been kind of frustrated uh, about this story is that it just ends. And I'm like, tell us what happens next. Tell us about the next like couple years with this son. Or like the next few months. Like what do you do after the party? But one thing is for sure, the father's not saying Come as you are and stay as you are. Right? He's saying, come as you are, be met with mercy, but Christ must change us. Mercy is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. It's not, I will continue to sin so that grace may increase. It's not, I'll just continue to be met by mercy. And so I'm real flippant about my life with him because his mercy is cheap and he'll always be there welcoming me in. Yes, he'll always be there, but he welcomes us in so that he can change us. He loves us too much to let us stay the way we are and excuse our sin as just personality or bad habits or simple mistakes. He gives us a new way and he commits to forming us. Number three, you get formed. When you meet with Jesus, you get formed. You get shaped by the resurrection. This resurrected Jesus shapes us to live a resurrection life. We kind of live many resurrections all day long. We have an opportunity to live many resurrections in this resurrection-shaped, formed life uh, where it's dying, rising, dying, rising. There's no resurrection without death. Right? Jesus isn't risen unless he, he died. So for us, if we're like, man, I want to I rise, I want God to rise me up, then we need to die. And so he's saying things to Peter in this passage of like, you're going to die. You've got to die to these old affections. Why are you out there fishing, man? We're not, we're not doing that game anymore. Why are you going back to that menu? Why are you choosing that menu? We don't order from that menu anymore, Peter. It's time to die to that so that I can rise you from that. It's interesting, this little phrase here. Verse 15, he says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, hey, Simon Peter. He doesn't call him Simon Peter. 
What does he call him? He says, Simon, son of John. <laughs> but Jesus has already named him Peter the Rock. It's fascinating that in a sense, um, kind of speculating here, but in a sense he's kind of saying like, Peter, you're not being very rockish right now. And I just want you to feel that. I want you to feel that you're not being very rockish, but I want you to die to this old person, the old Peter, son of John, so that you can be risen again to Simon Peter, the rock that I'm going to build my church on. We're going to do a series after Summer of Psalms uh, called The Rising Church. And for the church to rise, the church has got to die. Idols, our own um, selfish desires have to die in order for God to rise the church and to use us for anything. So Peter died on that, that beach and he offers us resurrection every day. John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit, so there must be death in order to have life. And so he says um, to Peter here, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. He was going to be crucified with his arms stretched out upside down. And after saying this, he said, follow me. And so he's saying to Peter, in a sense, he's saying, you're not directing your steps anymore. It was an old way of doing life when you were able to go the way you wanted to go and do what you wanted to do. We're not playing that game anymore. If I'm king and you're following me, you don't get to say what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. I'm the one calling the shots. Jesus is very clear, welcomes him with hospitality, but now he's... This is the way it's going to be from here on out. If I'm going to use you at all, if you're going to build, if I'm going to build my church on you, you're going to have to walk the way I'm asking you to walk. So there's a seriousness of following Christ. And the reality here, again, is that God just uses busted up people. Right? I mean, if you're wondering, like, God can never use me, God can never use us, look around you. Look at this. You know, God uses busted up people in Hebrews 11, right? You have this story, this hall of faith or whatever. It says even there that they're listed there because they were made strong um, out of weakness. God took weak people and made them strong. It's this admission of failure. How many fish did you catch? Did you catch any fish? No. Can you do it, can you do it on your own? No. Good. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. Have you been perfect? No. Have you always followed him beautifully? No. And God's like, I can use that person. I can use the person who admits their failure and says, I was wrong. I was wrong. Malcolm Muggeridge uh, said it like this, that Christianity from Golgotha on, onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Peter, the great rock, rose from the rock heap of failure. Our failures bring us to face to face with a weakness that lies within so that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. So think about this. Literally, Exchange Church, we are sitting here today, I would say literally because of this moment right here on the beach. I mean, you think about it. You think about it. Jesus took a busted up story with a busted up dude 
restored him and then built his church on this, on this guy. We did a sermon series in Acts. You know how pivotal Peter is. He built his church on him. And so I think Exchange Church is literally, God has navigated this whole thing because he saw intention. I got to get on the beach. I got to restore this guy because I've got a future plan. And the future plan is the advancement of the church. Exchange Church sits here because God took initiative on the beach. God wastes nothing. Another point here is God wastes nothing. He wastes no part of Peter's story. So the enemy wants to crawl up in your bed in the morning and say, you'll never amount to anything. And God crawls up right beside him, pushes him out and says, I'm going to use all of that. I'm going to use all your busted up story to show you that you're weak, to make you strong, to advance the church. To get out of bed, meet with me, come have breakfast, let's go. And so this is how the story of God is even like propelled forward is through weakness and brokenness. And I love, even if you get a chance this week, read first and second Peter, you know, the same Peter, Peter wrote first and second Peter, maybe get like a soundtrack of like a rooster crowing. And just have that over and over and over and just read first and second Peter. And just listen to a rooster crowing the whole time and think like, how is this guy writing this when he had that whole rooster deal going on? So God wants to give us a new way, even in this moment, to forever shape your family. You might feel like my family's doomed because of me. We'll never get anywhere because I'm in the picture. And God's saying, I'm in the business of restoring and empowering. So if you feel like you've, you've ruined it and, you, and you're a lost cause, man, God, just here today, God says, I waste, I waste nothing. Last points really quick. You get fueled by love. Again, he says that you, were, you deny me three, three times. Then he asked him three times, do you love me? And then he commissions him to feed, to tend, to feed. All right, he's saying, Peter, follow me. It's this invitation into real life. Again, um, speaking of 1 Peter, he says um, at the end of 1 Peter, let me find it. 1 Peter 5, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Don't that sound like four really good words that you would love to have in your life? That's very personal to Peter, right? So after you suffered a little, little while, he will do these four things for us. And so he's fueling him to live in such a way where he now has power. He's not just rendered powerless, but God comes in, forms him, to be something different and now fuels him to do something different. And that happened to be dying for Jesus. He talks about a martyr's death here. And martyrdom is one thing, but anybody can die a hero, but can you live faithfully? It takes a lot longer to live than it does to die. So can we live faithfully? But we have to know about the path of Jesus. You can't have the power of Jesus without the path of Jesus. Again, the power of Jesus, the path path of Jesus is pain. The path of Jesus is difficulty. And the path of Jesus is loving when loving seems really, really difficult. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says that the Christ's love compels us. 
It's his love that compels us to do this life. Hudson Taylor, a great missionary uh, who'd given his life to China, uh, one time was mentioned as uh, a missionary who, because of his love for the Chinese, he, um, he went on this, this mission. And Hudson Taylor said, no, not because I love the Chinese, but because I loved God. The love of Christ compelled me, it controlled me to do things that were radical and wild. And so our love compels us to live a life that is different. And we live our lives in the ordinary daily things of life, right? You follow Christ, it's not just toward the mission field, but you follow Christ in the minutes and the mundane. Moms, you follow Christ in the minutes and the mundane. And you hear him in those moments saying, do you love me? Do you love me enough to do this thing? So when you open your phone in the morning, you hear him say, do you, do you love me? When you wake up in the morning, he says, do you love me? When you enter that meeting at work, do you love me? When you stare down yet another load of laundry, little tiny socks, they get lost somewhere. Do you love me? When you set your budget for the next month, you hear him saying, do you love me? When you pause before you say that next sentence in gossip, he says, do you love me? When you audit how much time you spend watching the news or scrolling, 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 he says, do you love me? When you're tempted, students, with your friends to go along with what you know is wrong, it seems so cool, he says, do you love me? Yeah, 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 you know I do. You know I do. Then follow me. Then follow me. With everything you've got, follow me. Jump out of the boat. Run to me, meet with me, follow me. So we get fed, we get forgiven, we get formed, we get fueled. Lastly, we get focused. Last thing here. Um, Interesting little thing, I wasn't gonna preach this, but it's here, so. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus has a really insightful moment here. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. Peter, gosh, for the rest of your days, you're gonna have the temptation of looking at others. Being distracted, but what about her? What about him? Didn't they say, but what, I don't, but what, Peter, this is about me and you. The fire was for you. The fish was for you. This morning was for you. This breakfast was for you. Peter, stay in your lane, man. Step out of your lane, you get disqualified. Stay in your lane, this is about you. So he focuses us. When we meet with God, he gives us, with Christ in the morning, he gives us these horse blinder focuses and says, me, I must be your focus. When you meet with him, expect him to put his hands on you and say, you've got to keep your eyes on me. Not the people around you. I'm not saying don't love others. But I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about what their parents let them do. I'm talking about us. Me and you, 
One more, there's a bonus F right here. You get filled. Ephesians 3, we'll finish here. Ephesians 3, gosh, this text is just so good. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you want that in the morning? That God would provide you with Jesus-sized strength, fueled by the spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, like we just read, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and then know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that, the big so that, if you circle in your Bible, circle the that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you meet with him, you get fed, you get forgiven, you get formed, you get fueled, you get focused, and you get filled in a world that empties you, in a world that just sucks the life out of you. He says, come, eat breakfast. Let me forgive you. Let me remind you of where you've been. Let me give you somewhere worth going. And let me fill you with the fullness of God. Or the opposite of these, you can starve. You can continue to live in the weight of your sin. You can stay the same and not be formed any different. You can lack purpose and drive. You can stay distracted. You can live empty and depend on what you don't have. Or you can say yes to breakfast tomorrow. Have a mini resurrection tomorrow morning and know that Tuesday morning, they'll say, come have breakfast again. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those in the room even now who, um, God, just need to be tossed into the ocean. God, who need to throw themselves in and run to you. God, even now in this appropriate moment, we have an opportunity to connect with those in the room who have um, volunteered themselves to, to pray with us and for us. God, I have no doubt that uh, when we open your word, your spirit fills this, this room. God, your spirit has been working on hearts this morning through different elements of the text. And there are people here that probably need forgiveness, people here that need to be formed differently, people who need a different fuel, people who, who just need flat-out focus. People who say, I want that kind of filling. God, would you give them the courage this, this morning to even get up even now uh, and make their way toward the back of the room where we have our prayer partners who will greet them, not solve all their problems, not ask them a bunch of questions, but say, I, I, I'll, I'll enter that with you. I'll pray with you. I'll eat breakfast with you. God, would you give them the courage to do, do that as we respond in, in song, God, as we respond in prayer. God, thank you for being available, for welcoming us and being hospitable and being intentional and being forgiving and giving us a reason to wake up tomorrow. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.